As we turn to our scripture lesson in 1 Corinthians, as we continue our study of that letter, we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 today. We'll be reading verses 1 through 9. 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 9. This is God's holy word as he inspired the Apostle Paul to write. And so we know that because it is inspired by God, it is without error. And so again, as we have had the privilege of singing God's word this morning and hearing it read, we now attend again to the reading of God's holy word for the purpose of our sermon this morning, 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 9. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does, and likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. For I wish that all men were even as myself. But each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. Let's seek him briefly in prayer. Lord, again, we thank you for your written word. We pray that now as it is exposited, we pray that it would be used by you to edify your people, to change us, to conform us more to the image of Christ. So we pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts may be acceptable in your sight, as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, Paul changes topics here, and he begins to answer some questions that the Uh, Corinthians have written to him. So some questions concerning which some of the Corinthian Christians have written a letter to him. And these are questions in this chapter about singleness, marriage, and divorce. For the passage we're handling today, for these first nine verses of chapter 7, it's important to be aware of some of the things about the 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 cultural and historical context that bear on this. While Corinth was a predominantly Gentile city, and uh, probably the majority of the brethren uh, in the church there were of a Gentile background, had been former pagans, uh, there was still a sizable Jewish population and a pretty significant, probably a minority, but a significant minority of the Christians in Corinth had a Jewish background. So we have a lot of the members, and especially many of the first, probably most of the original members of this church, were Jews. And we see this in uh, the book of Acts, as we find that, that Paul first preached in the synagogue 
and uh, then to others in the town. We see that there were many converts from the synagogue. Indeed, the man who was the ruler of the synagogue when Paul first arrived in Corinth, a man named Crispus, believed the gospel. And the unbelieving Jews replaced him because they didn't think somebody who believed the gospel of Jesus Christ should be the ruler of their synagogue, apparently. And so they replaced him with a man named Sosthenes. And apparently, he then also became a Christian. He's mentioned in this letter. That, that suggests that Jewish believers made up a pretty significant portion of the congregation there, even if it ended up being a minority as so many pagans were coming to Christ. Nevertheless, uh, there were a significant number of Jews in this congregation. And that means that the, the cultural and religious background of the Jews is going to have an influence, perhaps, on some of the teachings or the beliefs of people in the church. And sometimes those comport quite well with the gospel, and other times, as we know, we read the book of Acts, the things that many Jews believed did not comport well with what God was telling them through Jesus Christ and through his apostles. So now, one of those things that we know that was common in first century Judaism is that first century Judaism rightly promoted the blessedness of marriage. Marriage is a God-created institution. It is a blessed estate. It's a beautiful gift from God. It's given for mutual support, for order in society. It's really actually the the basis. This is one of the failings of uh, modern political thought in America today, especially, also in Europe, is the notion, and we see this uh, with libertarians, people that we can might have an awful lot in common with and, and a lot of overlap between what they think government should be doing and what we think government should be doing. But at the same time, they tend to think that the, the basic political unit is the individual. And God says otherwise. The basic political unit that we find that God created was the family. The marriage of a man and a woman raising children so that's, marriage is given for order in society. That's one of the benefits of marriage that God has created. It's given also for the procreation and the raising of children. And that's part that, that goes hand in hand with the notion of order in society. Notice what happens to societies when marriages break down. The order in the society breaks down. This is a, a major factor in many of the ills of our own society. After the fall of mankind into sin, that is, marriage is also a remedy for sin. And probably most importantly, as we find in places like Ephesians 5, it's a picture of the Lord's relationship to his people, to his covenant people. This is something we find in the Old Testament, we find it in the New Testament. Now understanding these things... Some Jewish teachers would go so far as to say, singleness, therefore, is sinful. Even living single and celibate was wrong. They thought that either unmarried adults were practicing sexual sin, of course, or they were living a chaste life, in which case they were failing to obey the commandment to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Marriage, some claimed, was every adult person's duty. It's likely that that kind of teaching prompted people to ask Paul, is it good or not good for a Christian to remain single? 
Is it good for a man not to touch a woman? Other teachers, perhaps influenced by Greek philosophy, because remember that probably the majority of the congregation were pagans in their background, and they would have been greatly influenced, as you might recall we talked about Corinthian society, it was greatly influenced by the Greek philosophy of the day. And so probably people influenced by that kind of thinking may have argued the exact opposite, that it's a bad idea, maybe even sinful, to marry. Later in the chapter, Paul will blatantly state that such a teaching is wrong. Uh, Some Christians are called to serve the Lord in marriage, and some are called to serve Him in singleness. And neither is wrong. Today's passage contains Paul's answer to the question, or to questions like, is it good or not good for a Christian to remain single? As we consider the, the cultural and historical context, we see that, that Paul is not teaching that remaining single is superior. Some people can, out of context, draw that conclusion from what Paul has to say here, but that's not really what he's saying. He's not saying that being single is superior to being married, nor is he saying that being married is superior to being single. But rather that both marriage and singleness have their advantages in service to Christ. And he'll go on in more detail in the weeks to come. We'll get to the scriptures where he speaks more detailed or in a more detailed fashion about those blessings. In fact, the grammar of the passage draws our attention really first to verse 7. For I wish that all men were even as I myself, but each one has his own gift from God. One in this manner and another in that. We should note first that the word translated men there is not the word for adult males. It's the word for human beings. So he's talking to everybody here. So uh, it's the word anthropos. It means human being. So it means men in the more generic sense there. Humans. Paul wishes that everyone could be as self-controlled as he is. That's good for married people to be able to be self-controlled, right? All of us ought to be practicing self-control. But he recognizes that many single Christians have not been given the degree of self-control that he has, that same gift. And yes, every single Christian should practice and learn self-control, but he recognizes not everybody has the gift, the ability to remain chaste for life. For those who have such great self-control, serving God in singleness has many rewards, some of which we'll see later in the chapter. Others have different gifts, though. And particularly, others have the gift of marriage. Paul says in verse 7 that both estates, marriage and singleness, are gifts. So today I'll first deal with Paul's message to Christian singles, and then with his message, at least as it is in this passage, to married Christians. Because he has more to say to both in the rest of the chapter. So again, the grammatical focus really is verse 7, so let's start there. For I wish that all men were even as I myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. And of course, he could be speaking more generally of every Christian having different gifts from God, but particularly the this and that he's talking about here are singleness and marriage. As Paul speaks to singles, whether never married or widowed Christians, he says, 
I wish that all were even as I myself. Paul served the Lord in singleness with self-control. That's a huge caveat there, (laughs) with self-control. It gave him more time to dedicate to the service of the gospel. As he'll point out later in this chapter in verse 32 and 33, he says, He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord, but he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And he goes on also to say that the married woman has to think first of pleasing her husband. And so we look to the needs of our spouses And that's a necessary thing in marriage. But the single person doesn't have that distraction, if you will. Not that it's a bad thing. But the single person is free to focus more energy on serving the Lord. So Paul wishes that all single Christians had the gift to remain single in godliness and therefore be more effective, if you will, servants of God or more focused servants of God. From this we discern an important part of Paul's answer to the question, is it good or not to remain unmarried? He says, it is good to remain single for the one who has the gift to handle it. He blatantly says in verse 1, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And to touch a woman, this is one of those expressions that came from that that, uh, Jewish milieu of teaching about marriage that I was mentioning before. It's a common Jewish euphemism for those activities that God has given to be enjoyed within marriage, but not anywhere else. So many of the Jewish brothers and sisters may have been taught that continued singleness was inherently wrong. Paul says, no, it's not. Singleness is a good thing if it is chaste singleness. In verse 6, he speaks of marriage as an equally good alternative. But I say this, his counsel about marriage, as a concession, not a commandment. The concession has to do either with the temporary separation of the husband from a wife for prayer and fasting, or uh, it's better translated probably as awareness. Paul's not conceding that marriage is uh, is sometimes acceptable, but is voicing awareness that marriage and singleness are both good things if they're both handled in godly fashions. So as long as the single Christian can be self-controlled and remain celibate, singleness is a great opportunity to serve the Lord. Singleness with self-control is a blessing. So that brings us That's really our first point. Singleness with self-control is a blessing. Secondly, then, we come to learn that Christian singles, all of us, but especially the single Christian, has to keep this in mind, flee sexual immorality. In verse 1, we see that Paul is speaking of the goodness of being unmarried with the presumption of chastity. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. As we saw in verse 7, he says, some have the gift to do this, as he does. This has to be a prerequisite for those who would remain single to serve the Lord. You need to be able to remain self-controlled. As he wrote 
In chapter 6, verse 18, flee sexual immorality. The third teaching for singles he has here is pursue marriage if you do not have the gift to remain self-controlled in singleness. If you recognize that this is something that you can't do or don't believe you have the ability to do for an extended period of time, well, pursue marriage. That's perfectly appropriate. We have to make the caveat to say that, that many pursue marriage and do not receive it from God. Some, as, as I did, have to wait till later years in their life before they are married. Others desire marriage and never get it. And God is sovereign over these things and he has his good purposes for that. He commands that those who are single learn self-control. As he clearly says, as Paul clearly says here in verse 28, if you do marry... You have not sinned. We'll deal with that in more detail in the weeks to come, Lord willing. But he clearly says, if you do marry, you have not sinned. So he says in verse 9, but if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So he's saying, you single Christians have a great opportunity to serve the Lord and to focus more of your energy on serving the Lord whereas your married brothers and sisters have to focus some of that energy on the health of their marriage. But if you don't have the kind of self-control to continue in singleness, marry. It's better to marry than to burn with passion. He recognizes, on the one hand, that remaining unmarried has certain advantages for someone seeking to serve God. But on the other hand, he recognizes that God has not given very many people the degree of patience and self-control that long-term singleness actually requires. Notice that the the words with passion there in your text in verse 9 are italicized. That indicates that the words aren't actually there in in the Greek. So why in the world did the translators of the New King James Version put those words there? Well, it's because of both the context and the verb form. Uh, Paul isn't talking about burning in hell. A lot of people uh, take this verse out of context and think that Paul is saying uh, get get married or you'll burn in hell because of your your desires. Well, no, that's not what he's saying. In the context, we see that Paul's talking about desire for things which God has declared appropriate only within a marriage between a man and a woman. And when we consider also the verb form, we see that, that it's it's passive. Literally, it is better to marry than to be inflamed. So he's not talking about a fire outside of you that's consuming you. It's, it's something inflamed, something from within you. As in being inflamed with passion, with desire that you can't control. A single Christian who has such a strong desire should find a suitable partner and marry. Pursue marriage if you do not have the gift to remain self-controlled in singleness. Now, Lord willing, we'll hear more from Paul in the weeks to come concerning Christians who are unmarried or widowed, as well as more about marriage. But we find some specific teachings also in this passage for married Christians. So there were a few teachings for single Christians. We find a few for married Christians in today's passage also. Number one, it is good to be married. 
Again, taken out of context, many of the things Paul says here could, could sound to someone as if he's saying it's, it's better to be single, only in the sense that the, he would concede that, well, you can give more energy to serving God if you have that gift. But it is certainly not the case that he's saying it is bad to be married. It is good to be married. As I noted earlier, a healthy understanding of verse 6 is not that Paul is making a concession about marriage itself, but that he's saying, A, he's aware that marriage and singleness are both blessings, and B, that he is conceding that married couples for a time not come together in order to fast and pray, or simply he's saying this is an awareness that not everybody has the gift to remain unmarried. Paul certainly agrees that marriage is a good, God-ordained institution. That's the first thing he created for man after he created man. <laughs> he made us, and he, when he made our first parents, married them. He created a suitable mate for the first human being. We won't go into it now, but Take a look sometime at his counsel for married couples in Ephesians 5, and you'll see what a blessed estate the Apostle Paul thinks marriage is. He's not downplaying marriage. He's not making marriage into something less than good. It is good to be married. The second thing he tells married Christians is, stick to your own spouse. Verse 2, Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Something we need to note about the Greek is that there's not actually a special word for wife or husband in the Greek. It's just woman and man. And the way that you know that that husband or wife is meant by the words man or woman in Scripture has more to do with uh, context, particularly if there's a if there's a possessive pronoun. You know, she's a woman. She's his woman, right? Well, if Scripture says she's his woman, it means she's his wife. She's the woman that's married to him. Uh, and vice versa, if, if a man is a particular woman's man, well, then that means they're married. He is her husband. So notice a couple things, though, here. A man has a wife, literally his woman. A woman has a husband, literally her man. So marriage is there between one man and one woman. There is no biblical concept of marriage being defined any other way. Not two men together, not two women together, not multiple people married in multiple ways. One man and one woman married to each other. That's biblical marriage. Jesus says in Matthew 19, 5 and 6, citing Genesis 2, 24, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. So there's one man, one woman. They come together. Two are made one. That's marriage as God created it. I also might note in today's political and cultural context that in that same context, Jesus says, have you not heard that he made them from the beginning male and female? There's not a mixture of the two, and there's not a spectrum, right? We're either male or female. We are binary. That's the way God made us. So that's the first thing, though, that 
marriage as defined here is between one man and one woman, and B, each is to have his own wife or her own husband. That's the proper context for those activities God has given for marriage. Any other context is immoral. Stick to your own spouse. Paul says to the married couples, to married Christians. Married men, stick to your wives. Married women, stick to your own husband. Number three, he also tells married Christians, do not deny your body to your spouse. That's in verse 3. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise the wife to her husband. Of course, you know, living in a fallen world as we do, we understand there, there are concessions for age and infirmity. But it is not good to deny physical affection to your husband or to your wife. We, we ought to do this. This clarifies what Paul says in verse 1. He says it's good for a man not to touch a woman. He says that's true unless that man is married. (laughs) If he's a married man, it's not good for him not to touch his wife. It is good for him to touch his wife. It's not good for him to refrain from touching her. Married people avoiding that great gift God has given you, that thing that is given as a joyful aspect of our marriages, that's not good, Paul says. Don't avoid it. Don't refrain from it under normal circumstances. The only concession he offers is that a couple may agree to refrain temporarily for prayer and fasting. Otherwise, he warns, you could actually be leading each other into the path of temptation. This would be particularly true for younger Christians, for younger married couples. If you're refraining from physical affection, that's a very strong human drive. And remember, he's acknowledging that many Christians here might be getting married because they recognize it's better to marry than to burn with passion. I I could be burning with passion. And so uh, if a husband is not giving that affection to his wife or a wife not to her husband, the other could be burning with passion and might look for that affection, that physical affection elsewhere. Satan could use that as a foothold to tempt one to sin. Verse 5, Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and to prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So that's another bit of advice, a fourth bit of advice or counsel for married Christians in this passage is if you are married remember your body is not actually your own we saw last time our bodies aren't our own anyway they belong to Christ but under Christ if you're married Paul says your body doesn't actually belong to you it belongs to your spouse you know male chauvinists would love it if Paul had just stopped writing in the middle of verse 4 right The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Period. They would just love that, wouldn't they? Maybe feminists would like the other half of the verse to be be 
the only one there. But the whole thing Paul says here is the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. If you are married, your body actually is not really your own. It belongs to your spouse. Some Christians are blessed to serve the Lord in singleness. Again, we'll see more about this in the future, Lord willing. Others are blessed to serve him in marriage. The two are both good estates for Christians to be in. We must not be guilty, as some are, of promoting the blessings of one over the other. Many... Terrible situation has been created in Western Christendom in in history by the medieval tradition that some have continued of requiring clergy to remain unmarried. Enforced celibacy of church officers was a blight on the Western church for centuries. Some of them have had, some denominations have actually had kind of a knee-jerk reaction and almost expect, and some have actually required that men be married before they can be a pastor. My general teaching on that, my general thought on that, is that if if your requirements for office in the church would mean that Jesus or one of his apostles couldn't be an officer in your church, you've probably got a problem. They had heard about one small denomination that required their ministers to be married but didn't allow their seminary students to be married. So, so you've got this mad rush. A man is about to graduate from seminary and he's got to get married before he can be ordained <laughs> or find another job in the meantime. Many a Protestant has thrown the baby out with the bathwater, not maybe to that degree, but you know I've seen great pain caused by preachers and other elders promoting the blessedness of marriage with little, if any, attention to the blessedness of singleness as long as we're serving the Lord in singleness. Each estate is a blessing from the Lord to those whom he calls to those conditions. If he's called you to be married, it's a blessing. If he calls you not to be married, that is a blessing too. So many of us have been taught to see it as a curse. It's good to remain single if you have the gifts to do so. If you are single, definitely cultivate self-control for the time being. Recognize the blessing of singleness, especially the blessing of serving the Lord freely without needing to consider the needs of your husband or wife. Certainly flee sexual immorality. Pursue marriage, though, if you have the desire. It is perfectly appropriate. But patiently wait on the Lord in the meantime. If you're a married Christian, certainly support your single brothers and sisters in those endeavors. In obeying those commands from God through his apostle here. Recognize your marriage is a blessing from the Lord as well. Stick to your own husband or your own wife. Do not deny yourself to your husband or wife unless it's for a short time of fasting and prayer by mutual agreement. Mutual agreement's important there too. And remember, your body is not actually your own. It belongs to your spouse. Single Christians... Just as married Christians should be supporting you in your singleness, serving the Lord, you too need to honor marriage and support your brothers and sisters who are married with prayer, with godly encouragement. 
Serve the Lord in singleness or serve the Lord in marriage. But whatever your condition, serve the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that both marriage and singleness are blessings from you. We ask that you would help us to use either situation that we might be in to serve you as we might serve you more and more faithfully from day to day. Bless those who have been unmarried for a long time or who have been widowed to serve you in wisdom and self-control. Bless those who are married to have godly marriages. Bless our younger people with discernment as to whether or not to pursue marriage. And grant that they might, if they do pursue marriage, be granted godly spouses in all things. Grant that each one of us may serve you faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen.